a seat. Uh, as he said, my name is Pastor Daniel. Uh, if you are a young person this morning and you're going to go to Alathia Jr., uh, you can do that now by following the teachers out that way. And if you are new with us, uh, we have a gift for you. We have a scripture journal from the book of Judges uh, that we're going through right now. So if you'll just raise your hand if you don't have a scripture journal, the, and one of these fine human beings will bring you one so you can take notes along in the sermon. Now at this point, I'm assuming you're asking, why are you on the floor and not up here where you guys normally reside when you talk to us on Sunday morning? Well, if you would have read the passage that we read this morning to anyone who was alive during the time in which the scriptures were written, they would have been asking themselves this question. Why in the world is that man beating out the wheat in the wine press? Because everybody in the world knows, I mean, even the biggest imbecile alive on planet Earth knows that is the worst place that you could try and accomplish this task. This is the absolute wrong tools for this job. It's the modern day equivalent that if you were to take this device that each and every one of us has in our modern society, and you were to go into a repair store, and even though you've never tried to fix a cell phone or repair a cell phone, well, some of you have, I'm sure, but for those of us who haven't, even you know that the proper tool for the job most likely includes something like a micro screwdriver or like a micro pair of pliers, some, some very delicate and precise tools. But yet you know something is about to go horribly wrong when you see the repairman come out from the doors in the back and he, all he has with him is a hammer with a head on it the size of my fist. You know that something really bad is about to take place. So in this exact same way, the readers of the passage this morning, they knew that something was going really wrong. Now, my prayer right now is that nothing goes really wrong as I try to jump back up here on the stage just for a moment. Yeah! Not bad for 46. My biggest fear was not getting up on the stage. My biggest fear was actually ripping my pants and giving you an even better story to tell uh, this morning than the sermon that I'm going to be, uh, uh, to be preaching. So let's answer this immediate question of why Gideon is in the wine press trying to beat out the wheat um, instead of where he should have been. Look with me at verses 1 through 10 in chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Answering the question, why was Gideon in this situation? The Scriptures tell us because the people had once again not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Kevin, last week, went through Judges chapters 5 and 6. We see once again, God rescues the people of Israel out of their sin. The very last verse tells us the land had rest for 40 years. But now we're 47 years beyond that because for the last seven years, the people of Israel have been oppressed by the Midianites. Now you might be asking, well, who are these Midianites and, and what is it they're doing? What, what makes them so big and bad? You see, what, what would happen every year and the reason why Gideon was in this place is because you would have Israel in the West and just to the east of where they were, where they made their dwellings was some mountains. And just on the east side of those mountains were these Midianites. And the Midianites, um, I, I'll be honest, from, from a shrewd perspective, I, I kind of admire them because they had really kind of figured it out. They were a bunch of nomads, a bunch of wanderers. They didn't really have any permanent place. So they would just hang out during the year on the east side of these mountains. And they would let the Israelites go and plant their crops and grow their crops and raise their crops and tend their crops. And then right as it all got ready to be harvested, they would come up over the hillside, down the mountain, and like a swarm of locusts, they would raid all of the hard work that the Israelites had done. They would take all of their productivity for themselves. They would leave them only enough sustenance to be able to feed themselves and to replant their crops so that the next year they could do the exact same thing. And yes, this sounds just like an unjust government who taxes its people too much. This happened over and over and over for seven years. And because of this, Gideon finds himself in a wine press. Now, you still are going, well, why is it a big deal that Gideon is doing this task in the wine press? Because this is not where you separate the wheat from the chaff. Everyone reading the Scriptures who would have been alive during this time or at any point in the Scriptures know you want to go to an elevated place. Remember what separated the two, the two clans? The high place, right? The mountains. That's where you want to go. You want to go up the hill where wind was your best friend. Because it's a very simple task. When you take the wheat, you throw it up into the air, the wind blows, it separates the chaff from it, and it falls to the ground. You get to pick it back up, and you get to take it back home and enjoy your harvest. But Gideon is in a place where there's no air movement, where there's no wind whatsoever. And so what we see in this place, rather than Gideon being where he should have been, 
where the, of the nation of Israel being where they should be at this time, of being up high on the mountainside, enjoying the sun on their face, enjoying the nice breeze as it blows through, that thinking about the feast that's about to take place and the joy and the gathering and seeing his children run around and play and dreaming about the hope and the future and, and, and dwelling on the goodness of God. Gideon is down low in a low place where there's no wind, where it's hot, where it's muggy, where it's dark, where it's dank, hiding out in fear from the Midianites. All because of one reason. Because the people of Israel continued to not obey the voice of the Lord. From here, we get back into the Scriptures that Daniel read for us this morning. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. Now I want to take a moment and address this character who has now come on the scene, the angel of the Lord. I, along with many other people, um, are convinced this is none other than the second person in the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Son of God, but yet if I'm going to get theologically nitpicky for one moment, it's not Jesus. And now you're going, well, hold on. I thought Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, and um, I thought he was the Son of God. And yes, he is. But until he takes on flesh through the Virgin Mary, he's technically not Jesus. So here, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, shows up as the angel of the Lord. Now some of you may have never heard this, and some of you may be bothered by this, or may be wondering why I and many others are convinced this is in fact the pre-incarnate Son of God. And let me show you briefly why I think this is the case. Because if you look right here in, verses, in verse 14, it says, And the Lord turned to him, turned to Gideon, and said... Now, 
If you've never had a Bible lesson on this, if you see the word Lord up here on the screen, when it appears in your Bible with uh, this kind of all uppercase type, which I'm expecting it to magically appear. No, it's not there. Oh, it's just on the verse. Is it not there? Oh, no. See, okay. Yep, there it goes. There. Now it turned out right. Okay, I want you to notice the difference, right? See at the top right here where it says LORD in all caps? When you read the Scripture, it shows up this way. Sometimes it's not going to show up on your computers this way. But then you see right here um, where it says, please, Lord, you can see those are in different typesets. And in Scripture, this is very, actually very, very important because when you see the all caps like this in your Scripture, that's actually the proper name of God for Yahweh. All right. That's not so much a, a title D- down below. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? That's a title like king or governor. But when you see it in all caps, it's actually the name of God, Yahweh. So when Gideon addresses the angel of the Lord, this is actually Yahweh himself. This is actually the second person of the Trinity. And as we see in verse 22, Gideon addresses him exactly this way when he says to him then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord and Gideon said alas O Lord God O O Yahweh Elohim for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face and if you know anything about scripture one of the the biggest fears of the Israelites is that they would see God face to face because Everyone knows that you are not allowed to see God face to face for anyone who would see God face to face would die. I think it's important that we establish this fact that this is God himself. This is the pre-incarnate son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity speaking to Gideon. Because in this moment, he says to Gideon, in my opinion, what is one of the best lines in all of Scripture. When he says to Gideon, You, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, does anything up to this point give you any inclination to believe that Gideon is a mighty man of valor? No, because when God comes to him, Gideon's like, whoa, time out, hold on. I am the weakest and smallest and most pathetic in my whole family. My family is the weakest and smallest of the whole clan. Our clan is the weakest and smallest in all of Israel. You got the wrong guy here, Bubba. I am not this mighty man of valor. I am not a courageous warrior. I am weak, I am small, and I am pathetic. And the reason this should be so encouraging to every single one of us this morning is because what we see right here, when God addresses Gideon, He addresses Gideon not for who He currently is, but for who He is going to call him to be. This is why the Bible calls us holy. This is why the Bible calls us blameless. This is why the Bible calls us spotless. That even in the moments that, even though we may be, as children of God, even though we may have incredibly terrible, sinful moments, the Bible still calls us the holy ones of God. Spotless and blameless 
Because that is how we are. That is who he's calling us to be. And as I sat and I thought about this, as I was studying this passage, if you remember from a few months ago when I preached a sermon on the incommunicable attributes of God, and one of the things I talked about was God being eternal, that you and I, we exist in this sequential order along a timeline, but God is outside of time. All of time is present in one singular moment for God. That's why he calls himself the I am, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like he's always the same. So God experiences all time as one singular moment. So therefore, when he calls us these things, he's not like lying to us. It's because he actually chooses out of the entire span of our lives, he chooses to address us for who we will be who he is making us to be as the children of God. And so no matter where you are, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what your state is this morning, you are standing as a child of God. God declares you to be holy. He declares you to be spotless and blameless because you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And in that same way, we see this same God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He addresses Gideon, this cowardly, weak, pathetic man, mighty man of valor. Because God knew the moment that his spirit came upon Gideon, everything would change. And if you are a child of God, the Spirit of God has come upon you and the same power that causes Gideon to become the courageous warrior, the same power that raises Jesus from the dead now resides in you to go forth and do what it is that God is calling you to do in this life. Before we go to the next set of verses, I want to point out one more thing. One, one big error in Gideon's thinking. Gideon thought the problem was with God, not with him and the nation. He's like, where are you? We heard all these stories about Egypt. We, we heard about how you delivered. We, we've heard all these songs of deliverance. But yet here we are once again in this place. So often, when we are in the midst of rebellion and disobedience, we look to blame God for our circumstances. And the problem is not God. God had not forsaken Israel. Israel had forsaken God. That is why they are in this place. And so upon this encounter, we now see that Gideon is going to make an offering and a sacrifice. In verse 19, So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. 
Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and sprang up from the rock and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. Yahweh is shalom. To this day it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abazirites. What you should take from this moment in the story is that when Gideon went to offer a sacrifice, when Gideon moved toward God in worship, when, when Gideon became obedient to what the Scriptures declare, he saw God move towards him in an unexpected and incredibly powerful way. God fulfilled what he had just called Gideon to be. The mighty man of valor, the courageous warrior. And here's what you need to know. When God moves in your life, when he moved in Gideon's life, he pushed out the fear of the Midianites. One of the things that we still just do not talk about enough in church today as followers of Jesus is the fear of God. The scriptures declare to us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of of knowledge. And it's not in this cowering fear like, oh, God is going to smite us. It is this fear of gazing upon pure holiness. That if we were to gaze upon God with our mortal eyes, we would immediately blind and wipe from the face of the earth. Because if you remember in the story, like th this week, you know, we, we homeschool our four kids, and this year we're going through the entire Bible as part of our curriculum, and they're having to read the Scriptures from the very beginning to the very end. And this week was Exodus 19 through 40. And when I read this verse in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, I was like, this is going to be perfect for the sermon. Because Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. If you want to know how to drive sin out of your life, if you want to know how to overcome and conquer the sin that plagues you on a daily basis, the way to do that is to increase the fear of God in your life. And you increase the fear of God in your life by being obedient by moving closer to Him in obedience. And as you do that, you gain a greater experience of Him and His movement in your life, and it will build up in you a fear of Him, and it will drive out the fear of man and the other things that cause you anxiety in this life. This is how we overcome sin and temptation. This is how we overcome the fear of man. This is how we overcome any fear in our lives is by drawing nearer to God and experiencing His powerful movements in our lives. 
If you are serious about overcoming the sin in your life, you must fill yourself with the fear of God. Because notice what happens in this story. The moment the angel of the Lord consumes this offering with fire, Gideon recognized who he was with, that he had seen the Lord face to face. He knew the story of Moses where Moses said, God, I want to see your face. And God says, no one can see my face. I will let you see the train of my robe. And from that experience, Moses comes down the mountain glowing. And just the glow from Moses' face, the Israelites said, you've got to put a veil on your face, dude, because you are too bright, shiny, and holy for all of us. I mean, just think about that. The people were so afraid of the reflection of Moses' face from being in God's presence that they beg Moses, they make Moses put a veil over his face because it was too holy to see with their human eyes. Gideon recognizes who he is with. He is afraid he is about to be, is it smoked or smited? And he's about to be wiped out. And the second person of the Trinity says, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. The Lord is peace. If you truly want peace it is found in the fear of god the fear of god brings peace but notice what is about to happen in the story the fear of god brings peace so that gideon could go to war with his idols it is not so that gideon can just sit around and meditate and find this inner peace, and to get centered, and to dwell on it, and to think about it. No, it is so that Gideon can get up from where he is and to go to war with his idols, with his family's idols, and with his country's idols. Charles Spurgeon says this, When Gideon is fully at peace, what does he begin to do for God? If God loves you, He will use you for suffering or service. And if He has given you peace, you must now prepare for war. Will you think me odd if I say that our Lord came to give us peace so that He might send us out to war? Church, if you move toward God, if you move toward God and you experience more of His presence and you become filled with the fear of God, how you ask yourself, am I really being filled with the fear of God? You will, you will find a peace, but not a peace that causes you to be sedentary and do nothing, but a peace that motivates you to go to war with your idols and with the idols of those around you. And again, man, I just, I love this next part of the story. This is just one of my favorite stories of all in Scripture because it says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, 
And the second bull, take note, seven years old. How long had they been in under this oppression? Seven years. And pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. So Baal is the male deity of like prosperity and strength. Asherah is the female deity, the moon goddess. So God is ripping both of these down at the same time. And he says, build an altar uh, to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. All right. I mean, this is just awesome, right? I mean, here this guy has just had this incredible movement. And again, this story gives me incredible, it gives me, it encourages me, right? Because, I mean, this dude just had one of the most incredible experiences any human being has ever had in the entire history of mankind, right? And even with this entire, this entire story playing out, even with God calling him the mighty man of valor, he is still scared. He is still weak need. He is still a coward. But guess what? He's now a courageous coward, right? I mean, he's at least making movement, right? I mean, it's some slow obedience. I mean, he's still getting there. I mean, he's doing everything he can to not be discovered. You know, he didn't go out, you know, beating his chest, you know, like a big gorilla and like, watch this, I'm going to tear the whole thing down, right? No, like he's like sneaking around in night, but he's at least he's obedient, right? And God rewards partial obedience. Thank you, Lord. He rewards cowardly obedience. He just wants us to be obedient. If you need courage, this is one of the greatest stories in Scripture. I mean, think, you know, because we can identify with this guy, right? I mean, let's just be honest. In the Scriptures, who do you identify more with? Peter or Paul? Right? I mean, I get way more encouragement out of Peter and him being a knucklehead than I do with Paul being the super apostle, right? Like Paul's all, like Paul like never seems to have a failure. He just, go Jesus, go Jesus, go Jesus, doesn't care, you know? And, you know, Peter just can't help but stick his foot in his mouth every time he talks. That's why stories like this should be incredibly encouraging to us. Because we see God just being so merciful, so patient with Gideon. Because this was an incredibly hard task. I mean, because Gideon is ripping down everything he's known. I mean, for, for how many years have they been worshiping this idol? How deep is this idol in Gideon's heart? How deep is this idol in his family's heart? How deep is this, are these idols in the nation of Israel? But because God told him to do it, he was willing to step into it and to be obedient, even, even if it was weak, need, and cowardly. And from there, we see that when the man, men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, 
Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Do you see what happened there? All these men go searching for Gideon because he tore down their idol. I mean, they're furious. They're enraged that this man would rip down their idol. But see, Gideon's one act of weak need obedience gave courage to one other person, his father. That his father, who, I mean, these were the father's idols, right? I mean, the father just lost a ton of money when Gideon sacrificed his two bulls. I mean, this was a big financial loss. But inspired by his son's obedience, the father comes up and goes, whoa, 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 hold on. All right, we, we all worship this bell. We worship this Asherah. If they're like as big and bad as we think they are, let them do something about it. Let's just watch and see what happens to Gideon. Let's see what takes place. And guess what? Nothing happens to Gideon. And this movement becomes so powerful because it says in the next few verses, all the Midianites and all the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel, right? So they're getting ready to make their big raid. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abazirites were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Now this is where we're going to cut off the message today, and I know some of you were so hoping we were going to get to that fleece moment, because some of you are looking for direction from the Lord, and you want to know which way to go, and you want to know how to properly lay out a fleece so it gets wet or not wet, depending on the prayers that you pray. Too bad you ain't getting that from me today, okay? You might get it from Kevin next week when he preaches. I'll leave that up to him. But this is where we're going to cut it off, because I want you to see Gideon's obedience. Again, we're going to see it falter here in the, in the verses that follow, right? But one moment of obedience became contagious for his father to take a stand for Yahweh to be obedient. This spreads throughout the land, and we're going to see next week tens of thousands of men come and are now ready to follow Gideon. Because he is now seen as one who is courageous and filled with the fear of God. One person affected his family. One family affected the clans. The clans inspired the nation. And in this moment, 
they were all willing to fear God and to follow Him. We see once again in this story that God is incredibly merciful to the people of Israel. He does not forsake them. Even though they were in sin with their idols for many, many years. But He uses His judgment. He uses the Midianites as a tool to bring His people back to repentance. So often the things that happen to us in our sin as a tool of God to bring us back to repentance. And so now it's here that we take the story and we've got to make application to us today. And I, I need you to understand the, in this entire story, in this entire book of Judges, when we see that they're worshiping the Baal, they're worshiping the Asherah, they're worshiping these other gods, it's not as if they had forsaken God completely. That, that's not what's going on. What it was is that they were trying to cover all their bases, right? They would worship Yahweh. They would worship Baal. They would worship Asherah. They just wanted to make sure that they could cover anything. You know, let's get all of creation. Let's get the rain guy in here. Let's get the moon girl in here. Let's get the prosperity person in here. Let's get the, you know, the blessings of the children person here. And they would bring all these gods in there to worship because they wanted to get, they wanted to syncretize it to bring it all under one. But you know, if you've ever read the Ten Commandments, that is not what the very first commandment says you're supposed to do, right? The very first commandment is, you worship me and you worship me alone. You shall have no other gods before you. But if we're honest, this is what we do as well, right? We have these other idols set up in our lives that we hope bring us peace. We are all looking for peace. And again, this, this word in the Bible is not just like being tranquil, right? It's, it's the word, it's being whole. Like we want to be whole. But yet we feel very anxious. We feel very fearful. We feel very unsettled. And the reason we do, the reason we feel this way is because we are filled with the fear of other things rather than filled with the fear of God. And so as we, as we look at what are potential idols in our lives, you know, we'll just begin with one of the easy ones, one of the things we're going to talk about after church today, money, right? In case you didn't know, we're having this big kind of talk and gathering luncheon after church about money and, and, and a biblical view of money. I mean, who in here likes money? You're all liars. You all like money. We all like money, right? Like it allows us to do fun things. I didn't say love money. I said like money. But let's be honest. How many of us love money a little more than we should? Yeah, I'm a, I, I'm a businessman. I got three businesses. Money makes my world go round, right? I mean, capital makes, makes the world go round. 
But it's really hard not to love money. And that's not the only thing I love, right? I have other idols that, that, that I struggle with. Like, how do I keep money in perspective? How do I keep it in balance? How, how do I keep it capital moving for kingdom purposes, not for Daniel becoming Scrooge McDuck purposes, right? I mean, I'll be honest, that's kind of like one of, that's one of my like deep heart desired dreams. Like I grew up with DuckTales. And if you ever remember in the opening, Scrooge McDuck swimming in his vault of gold. Anybody? I'm there, man. I would love to swim in a vault of gold. That'd just be fun. But I'm like, that's not why God gives me money. That, that's not why God has blessed my businesses. It, it is to take care of my family, but it is to extend the kingdom around the world. Money can be an idol in our lives. Sex can be an idol in our lives. And let's just be honest. There are some of you most likely who had sex outside of marriage and you came here hoping to make yourself feel better this morning. There are some of you who looked at porn last night, maybe even looked at porn this morning before you came to church because it's a major idol in your life and it's a stranglehold on you and, and you don't know if you can let it go. And you may have tears of sorrow about it, but that sorrow hasn't led you to repentance. It's not a godly sorrow yet. Some of you are worshiping a relationship. You know you shouldn't be in that relationship anymore. You know this person's an idol to you. Because you know how you know this person's an idol? Because the, the mere thought of them not being in your life anymore brings incredible fear and anxiety into your life. If you, if you want to know how to identify an idol, the two simplest way is what causes you fear and anxiety. You look around you what causes you fear and anxiety? It's pressing on your idol button. You want to see how it comes out in your life? It's the, for, it's the progression of an idol. I desire, I demand, I judge, and I punish. Watch what happens when somebody touches your idol that you desire and you demand to have. Look at where you judge people. Look at where you wish you could punish. Oh, those people... Well, if you come and you touch this, then this will be the consequence. Unless it's the truly righteous anger, that's just someone pressing on your idol. Fear, anxiety, desire, demand, judgment, punishment. That's God revealing to you your idol. That's your heart telling you what your idol is. That's your flesh showing you what your idol is. Yes. Now the question is, do you want to worship God alone? Or do you still want to worship God and hold on to that idol? The only way you're going to get rid of those idols, the only way I'm going to get rid of the idols in my life is if I go to war with them. Not sit around and just go, Holy Spirit, take it away. You should pray for the Holy Spirit to take it away. But you need to know He's going to send you to war with that idol. Something that has that much of a stronghold in your life. Though there are times when God drastically and radically cuts out the tentacles of those sins in our lives. 
most of the time our experience is from us continuing to take steps of obedience one by one, cutting off the tentacles until those idols are in the rearview mirror. And so the question that you have to ask yourself is, are you willing to go to war with your idols? And if so, as I've said, that begins, it most powerfully takes place when we fill ourselves with the fear of God, not three steps to do this, three steps to do that. It is the fear of God that is the most powerful tool in the toolbox to help us get rid of the idols.